appreciate uh, Brother Sweeney, and I, I know his message must have been good. He really preached good the Sunday before that, uh, really laid the axe at the root of the tree, and we appreciate him, appreciate all of you. Uh, we also appreciate uh, Kathy, who requested prayer for us, when everybody else is about to forget us, and she remembered us. <laughs> and, you know, it, it may be a little thing, but... Uh, we came in, made that trip, didn't have any problems at all as far as I know, and we came in, and then I got up the next morning. We was going to the store to get some groceries, and our top radiator hose busted. And I thought that could have been out on the road someplace in the middle of nowhere on that busy uh, uh, freeway, and uh, that's how good God is. Yes, why don't we do that? It's a beginning. Ralph Cullum, a good friend of ours, we requested prayer for who had cancer, and now he's had a, a massive heart attack. And he is a little better, but he needs prayer. And also the one that Brother Denny had asked prayer for. Let's just make a special moment right now to pray for just those. Let's pray together. Father, again, at the advantage that thou hast given us, we come into your presence. We realize, Father, that you're the King of all kings, the God of all gods, healer of all diseases, and you care about us. Now, Master, we realize we're not heard by our much speaking, our loud voices, but simply by the earnestness that we have and faith we have in you. So right now, we pray that you'd stretch forth your hand into that home. Father, that you'd touch that man, his wife, Father, the family. You reach down and touch Brother Ralph and Sister Mamie in the name of Jesus and let them know beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you have entered into their presence, and in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who loaded all of our sins and all our diseases upon himself, mounted the cross of sin and shame, and died for us that we might have life. In that precious name we ask it, and we believe it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'll be reading from Numbers, the 16th chapter. Uh, we will be talking more on church growth, deter, not deterrence so much, but some of the principles of it. Uh, let's read first, and I'll give you a, a little background on it. Now, Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abraham, Abiram, the son of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, the son of Reuben, took men. They rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the congregation, famous in the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift you up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. And when Moses heard it, he fell upon his face. Father, we thank you tonight for your word, those things that were written for our examples. We pray, Master, that you would bless us, you would anoint us, and might we speak only your words in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I read that simply as a basis and a background for uh, some of the things that I'm going to say. We have been here for four months, going on five, and we have uh, ministered and, uh, and uh, let the Spirit deal with our lives and in our hearts and and uh, tried to ascertain through the spirit of the lord the necessities of our life individually and the necessities of our life 
church-wise. And we feel under the inspiration of God that if we are going to have a church and if we are going to grow, then there's certain things that has to take place in our midst as a group. Now, we would like for you to be, listen to us carefully because I feel that God has definitely laid this and the one before and perhaps another one we'll follow up with principles of church growth. Churches don't just happen. Churches don't just grow just because we happen to come to church, maybe pay our tithes or pray a little bit. Churches don't grow because of that. There are principles, certain things that makes churches grow. And uh, these are things that we need to understand in our heart and understand in our life. Now, my first effort of building a church or causing a church to grow was a complete failure. I could not understand it. I gave my life. I gave my heart. I gave my money. I gave my time. I gave my whole being to the building of that church, to the trying to build it up, and it never went anywhere. It was a complete flop. This bothered me for years. I could not understand it, but in that, God has taught me some lessons. He's taught me lessons that have been valuable to me. And since that time, and I feel like Paul sometimes in force bragging, and I'm not, only in God, but since that time we have not had a failure. That is, if people will listen to the principles and what it takes, all coming from God's Word, that will initiate church growth. And we covered some of those things last Sunday. Now, if you wasn't here last Sunday night, or the Sunday night, but Wednesday night before that, you get the tape because they're going to hook together. And you're going to need to listen to what God has to say to his people. Now, number one problem with the trying to establish that church is I thought in my mind that I was to do everything. I thought that I was supposed to do the visitation, I was supposed to do the praying, I was supposed to do the preaching. All of this was simply left up to me, and I was actually supposed to do most of the financing. And uh, finding this out, I found that people like to have an interest in what is going on in the church. They like to be involved. That is, committed people like to be involved. They like to be challenged to go beyond what they think that they can go. This is a challenge through faith. We've said often, now, faith is a good thing. Faith is something that reaches out and puts eyes to something that these natural eyes can't see. But faith also, eventually, after we see that, faith also brings those things of the future to the present and they become a reality. You see, if things are always in the future, then uh, we can accomplish nothing. We must see them, we must visualize them by faith, and then faith must bring them into being where we can see them. And then, after faith has done that, we reach out a little farther and by faith see something else and bring that into being. But you see, if we don't do that, we're always living in the future. Something that's always going to happen are things that have already happened, but we are in the present. Now, I read those scriptures simply because, number one, need of a church and a church to grow is naturally healthy leadership. Now, I'm a little bit... <laughs> what would you say, uh, a little bit disturbed when we deal with this because of the failures of leadership that has been blasted over the television, has been blasted in the newspapers, and is still going. And sometimes it's hard to insist that people follow leaders when you see, for the most, a lot of them, leaders have failed. 
But nevertheless, that has to be with them. Leadership has always been God's number one. God has always desired that. He has always saw to it that this happened. doesn't make the individual any better. It doesn't make him any worse. It just places him in a position, and the man should not be worshipped, but the office ought to be respected at all times. See, you're respecting the office of God, and you're respecting also the man that has been placed in that office. Now, I recognize the fact that many times that man has failed. But here's what I'm trying to say. Leadership. And a leadership gets people involved. And if people are involved and they help build a church through their witnessing and through their prayers, then should something go wrong with the leader, the church would still be solid and strong. But where everything is dependent upon the leader himself, and he's doing all of this, and the congregation is sitting by and maybe nodding their head once in a while and are not involved in that, when the leader falls, the church disintegrates. I've seen it happen time and time again. So a good, strong, healthy church needs leadership. A leader has to have a close relationship with God. Now, we do an injustice sometimes to our ministers and uh, leaders, and I have petitioned God. I'm not going to say I never will. Because there may come a time when I have to, and if I have to, I will. I'm not too good to. But I have petitioned God that if it is humanly possible that I should not have to hold down a secular job at any time and try to pastor or build a church. This divides your attention. This takes away your prayer life. This takes away your close relationship and communion with God. Individuals out here, you have to go to work. Your mind has to be divided. You don't have time for the Bible study that, that a pastor should have time for. And because of that, he delves into the Word of God, gets close to God, finds out what God wants, and then tries to lead you into that. You see, and that opens your eyes too. Also, he or she must seek God for direction. There is a direction that God wants us to go. And uh, if we don't get direction as the leadership, a church can flounder around. And a lot of them flounder around and go for years and no growth whatsoever. And some of them eventually find the way and flourish. But others flounder around and perhaps die. So you need direction. Direction is given, of course, through leadership, through constant prayer to God, constant seeking God, and all of these things. And also... The leader, he or she, must not be afraid to do what God wants done, regardless of how it must look to the natural eye. A lot of things to the natural eye doesn't make sense. A lot of things that God speaks to our heart when we're in prayer with him as to what he wants done that will cause us to come closer to him and the church to grow doesn't look like that is really necessary and doesn't make much sense. And sometimes that's hard for us to uh, to negotiate that is to put it into being because we're standing there looking at that and it doesn't make much sense. But for a church to grow, leadership has to be respected, leadership has to be approved, leadership has to be accepted, and leadership has to be loved by the congregation. Now that's the reason I said we have went four months. It's not very long, but it's we're in an urgency. We're in a time when we don't have as much time as we used to have. And we went four months trying to gain the love and respect and consideration and approval of this small congregation. We did our best to do that. 
If that is not enough, then you have to go back on our past records, and we can give you plenty of that, that we've never led anyone amiss. And there again, in forced bragging, which I don't mean it, but we went into a little church in Rosie Claire, Illinois, floundering around with nothing, a town of 1,000 people, and before we left there, we had a church building that would seat about 400 and a congregation of better than 200 by the grace of God. Because we found the principles that God wanted to use and we found the people that was concerned about what God wanted out of them individually and what God wanted out of them collectively as a body. It's not hard sometimes for God to speak to us individually as to what we want, but sometimes it's hard for us to realize and Him to make us realize that we are connected as a body. And what one does affects the other, whether we want to believe it or not. It has an effect because we are not out here by ourselves. God placed us in the body as it has pleased Him. Not necessarily as it has pleased you, but as it has pleased Him. So the brother and sister that's sitting next to you, away from you, hasn't been placed in this small body by, by them or by you. They've been placed here by the Lord. And realizing that, let's accept our responsibility as to what it is. Now then, direction given by the Holy Spirit, we're going to give you some examples, has to be carried out to the letter to bring full results. You see, it's hard for us to recognize that, and I, I'm not putting a heavy on you, and I'm not blaming us a lot, but it's hard for us to realize that we can't take what God wants and just play around with it and do it if it suits our fancy and then expect the full results that God has promised us of that and sometimes we do that we go before God and say but God you promised but our part of the bargain wasn't fulfilled we did it in accordance to the way we thought that it ought to be done or disregarded it sometimes and that is where we are a failure remember again we are now a body we cannot and we must not function as individuals. Anytime anything is happening to us, it is happening to the whole congregation. Anytime something good happens to us, something good happens to the whole congregation. Anytime something bad happens to us, something bad happens to the whole congregation. Anytime something bad is said, it is said not about only an individual, but about the whole congregation. It has to be. Anytime anything good is said, it is said about the whole congregation. You can't separate it. You must not separate it. And you must recognize that. That's the way it was with Israel of old, and that's still God's way with the church today. Now, I want to give you some examples of the Old Testament, and God tells us that those things are written and put in there for us, for examples, that we might go back and see what God demanded, and look at Israel's failures and profit by that, and look at Israel's victories and profit by that. And so your good thing about the Bible is it records defeats and victories and successes and failures. It doesn't limit any of that. It's all in there. Now let's give an example, and we'll hurriedly go over that. The children of Israel, under bondage to Egypt, sighed by reason of bondage. In other words, they was tired of being a servant to Egypt. They was continually, you'll find that at probably in the first or second chapter of Exodus, and they was finally getting tired of that, and they sighed by reason of that, and God hears us when we cry. Can you say amen? 
When we cry, when we're sighing, when something is heavy, God hears us. And God looked upon the children of Israel, the Bible says, and had respect unto them. He respected them for where they was at. And then God calls Moses. And uh, then he takes him out and he places him in the desert and takes him away. And finally, through a burning bush, God commissions Moses. Number one, before they could leave Egypt, they had to have a leader. They had to have leadership. They couldn't just go out, one running this direction, one running that direction, one doing what they wanted to do, another do what they wanted to do. They couldn't go out of Egypt that way. They had to be organized and they had to have a leader. So number one, God prepares leadership for them. A long time before he commissioned leadership for them, all right? So we might look at that sometime. God prepares and prepared probably leadership for you a long time before leadership was commissioned to come here. Now, if we don't believe that, we just well close the doors and walk out, see? We've got to believe that God has been in this thing from the beginning. And that when you come and took part of it, God sent you here, and you have no choice as to the fact that you are here. Amen? And also, you've got to believe that after much sighing, God heard your cry and sent leadership. Amen? sent leadership. I mean, uh, he, he sent leadership. I mean, we had no choice about it. We couldn't pick and choose. All right? Neither could you pick and choose in all actuality. And so leadership was prepared. First off, there had to be a contest with Pharaoh, and this was dealt with by the leader. There is always a battle, a spiritual battle in this day and hour, but the battle usually is, first of all, between leadership and the devil. To find out, get through the barriers, get through all of these things, to find out what God wants and to separate the human mind from the divine presence of God and the divine mind of God. And after that, finally, it was time to leave Egypt. But God gives Moses explicit orders on how to get out of Egypt. Amen? Now, I firmly believe, and we're going to read some of those, I firmly believe that if they had not obeyed those uh, orders of God to the letter, they would have never have gotten out of Egypt. They would still be in there. I don't think they had a choice as to they could obey this one, and they could not obey that one, or they could half do this and fully do the other. I don't think they had a choice. I think God gave the orders, I think they were explicit orders on what they must do in order to salvage their life and salvage their family and to break down Pharaoh's hard heart. And let's go to Exodus 12, 1, 11. You know all about these, but let's read them just the same. These are Old Testament orders on how to leave Egypt. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall... Be unto you the beginning of the month, and it shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, now notice explicit, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb." Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male in the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. 
and you shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take the blood and strike it upon the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire his head with his legs, with the putrence thereof. And you shall let nothing of it remain until morning. And that which remaineth of it until the morning you shall burn with fire, and thus shall you eat it, with your loins girded, and your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Israel I will execute judgment. I am the Lord." And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Explicit orders and directions given. Not one thing could they leave out. And I want you to notice how particular he was. And look at that from the natural fleshly standpoint. And doesn't, look, doesn't it look silly? Doesn't it look ignorant for God to uh, ask all that to be done? All of these things uh, that he asked. A certain day you put it up. A certain day you have to kill it. A certain way you, you, you have to kill it. Uh, and all of those things that he gives and tells you to do. A certain way you have to burn it. You can't roast it with water. It has to be with fire. And then you have to apply the blood to the two side posts and upper door posts to keep the deaf angel from entering into your home. Now stop here for a minute and assume that somebody said, I don't believe that's necessary. Stop here for a minute if this was in our day and hour. When as little respect for leadership as there is, and I'm not pointing it to you, as little respect as leadership as there is in our day and hour that we live in, and someone was to come up with something so finite and some small thing and say, this has to be in order for you to get this, that, or something else. And we would look at them and say, you've got to be crazy. I don't have to do all of those things. But look at it. What would happen if you just put the blood on the sides of the doorposts? You think God would have passed over? I don't think so. What would have happened if you would have just put the blood on the upper part of the doorposts? Would God have passed over? I say no. Explicit directions of Almighty God that challenged them to do that in order for them to bring them and their families out of Egypt safe and sound. Explicit orders had to go ahead and follow as God led them to the edge of the Red Sea. And Moses' voice was still there when he said, Stand still and see the salvation of God. Amen. Now you know that must have been hard for those individuals even though they saw all of that, to realize there was an army behind them, and there was a Red Sea in front of them, and Moses has the audacity to say, well, don't you worry about it, you just stand still, and God's going to do it. We are in such a habit of trying to do things ourselves. And sometimes God is just saying, you go as far as you can go, do the best you can, and I'm going to take it from there. Hallelujah. And how many believe that tonight? Glory to God. And I think we need to start believing that. And what he means is for us to do the best we can. And go as far as we can. 
And then from there on, God says it's all mine. But we can't just say, God, I want this little bit. God says, I want you to do a certain thing. I want you to go a certain way. And we say, well, I, I, I halfway did that, God. I mean, after all, can't you see I'm human? <laughs> all right, am I, am I down here with us? Can't you see I'm human? Don't you know that, that I'm just a sinner saved by grace? Don't you know that's too much for me to do? Let me ask you something. Do you think that God would demand something out of us that he won't give us the power to do? And when he asks us something explicitly, he knows we can do it. Amen? So on and on you can go. Now then, Moses has led them. They have rebelled. You see, the first rebellion against God's leader wrought havoc in among God's people. The reason they rebelled is the reason people give today is simply because uh, Korah and all of those came out and simply said, you're taking too much on yourself. Who do you think you are anyway? We're just as holy as you are. And they were God's chosen people. That wasn't a question of holiness to God. It wasn't a question of, of being chosen by the Lord. The question was who God chose to be the leader. Moses didn't choose himself, and no leader chooses his position. God chooses it for him. Amen? And we need to recognize that. You see, the only advantage a leader has is God just places him up a little bit higher. That's all. Not that he's any higher, but the office is higher. Watchman, what of the night? He stands there up on the watchtower and he watches. You'll be asleep sometimes. You'll be out working sometimes. But the leader should be there on the watchtower watching for the enemy and searching for any little vermin that might creep under the wall and come in and spoil your vine and spoil your fruit. But you see, in order for the watchman to do his job right, he can't just see what is coming. He has to warn you of what's coming. And then you have to believe what he says, and you have to prepare yourselves for that. Now, in my 30-some-odd years of ministry, I've seen a lot and I've warned a lot. <laughs> and few, a few have taken advice and others have not. Because they couldn't see any earthly reason why they should do what God impressed through leadership well, through prayer, through close communion, couldn't see any reason why they should do this. And eventually their lives is in shambles. We just heard not long ago, and give you some good examples, of the church we spent some 19 years in. There was a family that I continually, continually warned. Every time I would go to prayer, one member of this family would come before me. And I would continually warn this family that the way you're living your life is going to cause some havoc later on with your children. Why well, I got good children. They come to church every night. I said, I'm not talking about necessarily now. I'm talking about the seed that you're sowing in them and what they're going to do when they get out from under your rule. This is what I'm talking about. Well, they didn't see it that way. They went ahead with their own lives. They gave no time for the children whatsoever. All kinds of money, but no time for the children whatsoever. And what has happened? Well, one little girl has went out and become pregnant. Another one has, uh, what was it, anorexia. Uh, another one is running around, and this man and his wife... Good stable was the song leader in the church. Good stable people. This man and his wife are separated and thinking on a divorce. 
and her children are scattered every direction. This is just one example of what could be avoided if we believed the leadership God places in our midst and would listen to what God has to say. For the most part, what my wife and I say is not things we want to say. We would like to pat you on the back and tell you you're doing all right. You just go ahead and do everything the way you want to do it. But sometimes God stops us inside. There's an insight there that God gives us that perhaps you can't see. And it's all meant in love and adoration to you and to God to try to stop some misery that's going to be later on down the road. So eventually they got it to the promised land. People wouldn't come in. Forty years of wonderings, forty years of problems, you see. Eleven days is all it took to get there. Eleven days they'd have been into the promised land if they could have believed leadership. You see, Moses chose twelve individuals, sent them out to come back. God had already told them the promised land was theirs. That should never have been, had to have been reiterated. That God had already told them, but they came back with a report that there's giants in the land. You see, but two of them came back and they didn't see the giants so much. They just saw the good things in the promised land and said, our God is able to give us the land. Friend, the land out here is full of giants. I can't tell you they're not there, but God is well able to give us the land that He has said was ours. But there has to be a willingness against all odds to gird up our loins and put our shoes on our feet and get ready to fight the good battle and take the land. The devil's not going to give it to you. You have to take it. Finally, Moses died. Getting ready to go into the promised land. One leader is dead. God said you can't make it in there. You've got to have another one. So Joshua comes on the scene. Moses himself with the finger of God picks uh, Joshua, and Joshua gets the children ready. And notice, Joshua gives explicit orders on how to get to the promised land. You see, the river Jordan was overflowing its banks. Not only did they have to worry about crossing an overflowing river, but lions had been down in that area. thousand cubits. That's another message. We'll get into that some other time. But he said, you leave a space. Now, that seemed ridiculous. Why not just get as close to it as we possibly can? But a base of 2,000 cubits between the Ark of the Covenant and the priest that bear it and the people. And then he says, As soon as the souls of the priest that bear the Ark shall rest in the waters of Jordan, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of Jordan. <laughs> Hallelujah. I like that. He shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand upon an heap. In other words, the way has been prepared. You do it according to the way I tell you to do it. Joshua, you tell them what to do. Now then, let's suppose that leadership would have been ignored much of the way that it is ignored in this day and hour. And they had decided that just the minute that the priests moved, they would just move. I ask you a question. Do you suppose that the waters of Jordan would have rolled back? I would have to say a thousand times no. God gave orders. He said, I want 2,000 cubits between you and the Ark of the Covenant. It had to be that way. Doesn't make much sense. You wonder why it had to be, but God knows what he's doing. Sometimes if we don't know what he's doing, just believe him anyway. Now we're in the promised land. 
Everything is all right. Everything's just fine. We got in the promised land. You, you know those old songs, you know, and way back then we used to be taught that the promised land is heaven. Well, I've got news for you. It's not. Promised land is not heaven. Promised land is filled with giants and filled with walled cities and filled with places that has to be taken, all right? Had to be taken by the children of Israel. There was battles just crossing the river Jordan. God did all of that. But now then there's going to be battles that have to be fought. You're in the promised land. God gave it to you, but you're going to have to fight for it. You've got to take what God said was yours. I think the devil has took from us and he has set himself on what God has said was ours and we've just sat on the banks of Jordan on that side and said well God do it but God is telling them what has to be done go to Jericho he said that's the first city that you have to go to and the battles have to be fought and won in order for us to possess what is ours the same as theirs so there was preparations anytime there is a battle there must be a preparation and there again, that has to come uh, uh, from leadership. What preparation should we make? And God again gives explicit orders to Joshua. And this is what he says. Those that were armed were to pass on before the ark of the Lord. The seven priests bearing the ram's horn was to follow them. The ark of the covenant was to follow the priest with the ram's horn. The rest of the congregation was to follow after the ark. Then, he says, you shall go around the city in this order, just like I told you, once a day for six days. You can't go in anymore. You can't get out of order. This is the way it has to be. But God, why can't you just break down those walls without all of that nonsense? You see, God was some way trying to, to put some, some energy in his people, some faith in what he has to say. Not only was God wanting faith in him, but he realized the only way he could get faith in him was to get faith in his leaders to believe what God had to say to them and the way he's going to lead them. And notice, he said, the priest shall blow their trumpets. Now that's once a day for six days the priest is going to blow their trumpet. But now he gives some orders to the people that I think we'd find hard to follow in this day and hour. He says to the people, you shall not shout, nor make any noise with your voice, <laughs> neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth until the day I bid you shout, then shall ye shout. I want you to picture Joshua today. <laughs> I want you to picture him standing before a congregation, almost any congregation, today and I want you to listen to him say now I don't want you shouting I don't want you opening your mouth until I tell you to hmm. who do you think he is <laughs> you're going to tell me to shut up talk when I get ready say what I want to say when I want to say it <laughs> alright see Joshua <laughs> he'd have a time I suppose but they respected this man. This man was a warrior. He had proven himself over and over and over. He wasn't a novice. He wasn't a fly by night. He was one of them that went into the wilderness, was there 40 years and came out. He knew what it was all about. He had been tried and tested. And these people could see and they respected him. And so they walked around with their mouths shut. That must have been for the ladies too. All the congregation had to keep your mouth shut. Couldn't say anything. Here we are walking around this stupid wall. 
and those soldiers up on the wall looking at us and laughing at us, and we can't even stick our tongue out at them. <laughs> we can't even boo them. We can't even tell them. That's all right. You just wait for six days. No, you're just supposed to do it and keep your mouth shut, he said, until I tell you to shout, then I want you to shout. Was there a reason for that? There certainly was. Now, on the seventh day now, things is going to change. You shall compass the city seven times. That's on the seventh day. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. But when you hear a loud blast of the sound of the trumpet, and when you hear this, and not before, don't get mistaken in anything, but it's a long blast. You're not used to hearing this. It's going to be different than the way they've been blowing the trumpets. And when you hear that, all of you shout with a loud shout. That'd be hard on Baptists and Methodists, and, and a few of them, and hard on a lot of Pentecostals, wouldn't it? All right? But he said, this is what you're supposed to do. And he said, you, you shout, and when you do, the walls is going to fall down. Now then, what if they'd have just looked and said, well, we walked around this wall for six days, and nothing's happened, and I'm not about to walk around it no seven times. I'm tired and I'm weary. I'm going to stay home. I'm going to build me a campfire. I'm going to roast me some weenies. And I'm going to have me a big time rest. You guys, if you want to walk around that road, that wall, you go ahead. But I'm tired of this stuff. Us congregation not going. That's all there is to it. Joshua, if you want to do it, you go ahead. The walls of that city would have never... You see, it wasn't up to the leader to do it. It was up to him to tell what the congregation to do. He was involved in it, but they had to do it in order for these things to be accomplished. And so it happened, and the walls fell flat. What a victory! First victory, hallelujah, we really tried ourselves. But then comes incomplete obedience. This shows you what complete obedience does paints you the prettiest picture of complete obedience. Imagine a walled city. It used to know how thick the walls was. I have forgotten that. But they were thick walls. And all at once they simply fell. And they walked right in and took the city. Complete obedience. Doing those stupid little things. And it didn't look like there was any sense in, but they did it just the same not because it looked good to them or not because they thought it looked right, but because somebody told them that God said it was the thing for you to do. And they believed it. And they did it. This was their first city. Now then, they're riding a wave. They've had a great battle. They've had a great victory. And they go out and send a great army against a small group of a, of a town called Ai. And what do you know? They met their defeat there. Just a few put this great army of Israel to flight and defeated them. Now why? You probably know this, but let's look at it. God's orders. And ye, in any wise keep yourself from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed when ye take the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. And when Joshua sought God for the cause of the defeat at Ai, God said these words, Israel hath sinned. I want you to notice his language, Israel hath sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, 
for they have taken the accursed thing and have also stolen and dissembled also and they have put it even among their own stuff. And from these words we would assume that almost all of Israel had done this deed. But upon an investigation by Joshua, they found out that only one man had did this deed, and yet God pointed the finger at all of Israel and said, Israel has sinned. You see, that makes us know the oneness that God has always had among his people, and that what one does always did hurt Israel and what one does hurts the body of Christ today. There's no way for us to remedy that. God has made it that way. There's a lesson in this, friend. The sin of Achan and its results teach a great truth of the oneness of God's people. When God said, they have done it, God accused the whole works of it. And yet just one out of that, that, that illustrates a great truth. Also, you're going to find in 1 Corinthians when it talks about, now then ye are the body of Christ. Let us to know that. Also, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 7, and we'll not read it, 12, 12 to 12, and verse 26. And you see, what it's actually saying here, and what it's telling us, and I wish that some way I could get it into our hearts tonight, that the whole cause of Christ is injured by the sin and the neglect and the unspirituality of just one believer. It doesn't seem fair, but it's the oneness of God. It's the oneness of God's people. And what I do affects you, good or bad. And what you do affects me, good or bad. And it affects everybody else that's assembled among you and is part of the congregation and the body of Christ that God has called you out to be a part of. You see, you can't just do it and say, God, it's my sin. God says it belongs to them too. And since God breathed that thing into my life, I had to be very careful how I walk, what I say, and what I do. For I don't just pay for that, but other people has to pay for it with me. And I say, God forbid, and God help us. And God open our eyes to our oneness. It ought to be a great thing. It ought to be a great thing to assemble together here, to put aside our animosities and our jealousies and our pride and all of this, and just look and say, look what God has wrought. Look where God has placed me. Look where I am today in God, and say, God, just use me. We ought to be able to do that, and we ought to be able, and we must be able to do that if we expect to accomplish what we feel like God has sent us in this city to do. There is a necessity for individuals to be reached. There are fortified cities that walls need to fall. And the only way they're going to do it is for God's people in one mind and in one accord. Realizing just one thing. What is it that God wants out of us? And what can we do to better the body of Christ? It's always been God's order. Coming on up and we'll try to close in just a few minutes. But my, my spirit is full. There's an urgency inside of me that makes me cry out, My God, let them listen. Let them hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let our life be challenged. If not now, if it had never been, let it be challenged now. And let our soul cry out and say, God, where have I missed you at? And let me search my life. God, let my life be an open book for me to read that I might understand more about what you want out of me. You see, it's not all fun and games. 
We've been taught sometimes that we can do about anything and just run to God. It's going to be all right, but it's not all fun and games. Not when you want to save a soul and get a wretched one into the power of God. It's not fun and games. It's work. It's a battle. There's walls around there. There's places that need to fall. And the only way it can do it is for God's people to be together with one shout and oneness and the walls fall down and we can take the city. And the city needs taking. Complete obedience, though. Jesus orders in St. Luke 24, 49, says, And behold, I send a promise of my Father upon you, but tell you in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. There again you see leadership emerging from that. 120 gathered together. Somebody had to be the spokesman. The Bible says in Acts 1.10, Peter stood up in the midst of them. He begins to take charge of this. And for ten days, those individuals had no way of knowing how long they were going to be there. They had no way of knowing. But for ten days, these 120 prayed. They worked out. Now, I don't think, and pardon me if, if, I, <laughs> if, if I cross uh, your doctrine, but I don't think they just went there and got on their knees and cried and begged. I think they went there. I think they went there with as many differences as any individual that comes together would ever have. I think they went there with just as many ideas and opinions as any group of people that comes together. I think they came together out of different uh, places and of life, different statuses of life, and, and, uh, and different things in their life. But I think God put them there and kept them there and they prayed and they worked out their differences, and they helped one another with their difficulties, whatever their difficulties might have. They helped one another with their doubts when they had prayed, and they didn't know what was happening at home, uh, and they didn't understand that they were beginning to doubt whether God was ever going to come or not. Somebody would go over and say, Brother, just hang on. God's going to do what He says, and encourage them doing their doubt and doing their discouragement until finally they got their mind in just one accord. They didn't think about anything else. Everything else was blinked out from their mind and they had one thing in mind and it was in one place and all that matters was for them to receive the power to be witnesses to go out and set individuals free that needed the power of God in their life. This would have not been, this would have not been able to be accomplished had not these individuals prayed, worked out their differences stayed and got where God wanted them to be and then God anointed them with the power and sent them out. Friend, let me tell you something. We need to pray and we need to work out our differences and we need to get where God wants us and we need in our doubts and our fears for somebody to come along and say, hang on there. It's going to be alright. And as a body, stay in this thing until the Holy Ghost anoints us with a revival and tears down the walls and sends us out and says it's time to go now. And we can't go without the anointing of God without the satisfaction of knowing where we're at in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. I'm going to have to quit. Hallelujah. Nothing else matters. All the doubts and fears have been erased. All the difficulties. All the differences. Place over here. They really don't mean anything they said. You see, the longer you're in the presence of God, the less you think about yourself. 
the more your mind is concerned about your commission and what God has set you to do, you become less concerned about yourself. And you become concerned only about the commission God has given you. Their only concern was for the power that God promised them. Not a power to make them shout. Not even a power to make them speak in tongues. But a power that would make them a witness. A power that would cause their life to be so changed that nobody would question that God was in it. I don't necessarily think that the words they spoke from their mouth meant much. I think it was a life lived from their heart and the change that was wrought in these lives when they came out of that upper room. And Peter stood up that great day and stood up with the elders. And 120, all of them came out of that room. They were different people. They went in there with their doubts and fears and humanity. But they came out still human, but divinity had taken over. And they came out and Peter stood up. They, the crowd was amazed. There was an attraction there. People were speaking in another language. They didn't understand what it was. Some of them were still mocked. But Peter stood up and began to preach that great message that still runs down to the quarters of time to your day and mine and challenged individuals and they saw such a light glow from these lives that was so changed that 3,000 souls were saved in one day. Tell me unity doesn't do something. Tell me leadership and responsibilities that God has given us and being responsive to God doesn't do the job it always has and it always will. But too often, too many times, We've got our own system worked out. The only thing that, that is needed is for God to work in our lives. Everything that I have just said, perhaps a few other things, but let's chew on this a while. All this is needed in our congregation before, before we can grow as a church. It has to be, if we can't come together in unity in the Spirit of God for one purpose and one purpose alone, and be led by the presence and Spirit of God, and be under submission to God's leadership, then we just as well lock the doors and be satisfied with what we are now. Friend, let me tell you something. It's time that we wish to realize that we wasn't just set here to play. Amen? We wasn't just called out just to play around. God set us here to do an impossible thing. And you know it is impossible. Money-wise, it's impossible. Congregation-wise, it is impossible. But what makes it possible is God said, it can be done if you will submit to me and what I want. So you see, I think perhaps our failures, and there again, I'm not unchristianizing you, but our failures thus far, and God help us that we, we will recognize it, but our failures thus far, is to fail to realize the importance of what God says for us to do, so much so that we will complete it fully. 